a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is Michael Mazzola, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and this is episode 11, my interview with Buddy from Alien Protocols. Really, really interesting chat with Buddy. Uh, we go over an hour discussing remote viewing, growing up with psi gifts, precognitive dreams, an update on the Magia UFO. He remote viewed this, some really interesting comments about what went on, um, some Skinwalker Ranch involvement, and then some listener questions that you must stick around for. So folks, just a, a little summary before we get into the interview of this week. My next two guests coming up will be Calvin Parker. That was pushed back very slightly, and Calvin is one of the most famous UFO abductees on the planet. He has a really fascinating story that is just always incredible every time you hear it. So we'll be speaking to Calvin and also Bryant Arnold. You may know him better as Dragon from The Curse or Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, depending on where you watch it. So Dragon is going to be on the show. I'll be speaking to him Sunday night. That interview will be released within the next two weeks as well. So a quick thank you to all the Patreons. We've got Doug, Jennifer and Cameron all signing up over at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who does pledge to support the show. You, of course, get queue jumps, additional bonus content and early access exclusives over there as well. And you can pick, if you sign up on the $10 tier, your own show to be reviewed and you can come on as well. But folks, as always, thank you everyone for listening to the shows and keep sending over your questions. Skinwalker Watch Along Episode 6 is available as an early access exclusive right now over on Patreon. That'll be dropping into the main feeds on Friday the 17th of July, of course. Two shows left on that one, myself and Dan, and we've got another couple of Skinwalker uh, type shows planned to follow up after episode 8. A new show starting later on this week will be hashtag TUP Talks totally ripping off the TTSA talks, but we are going to be coming back to discuss, that's myself and Dan, our thoughts and opinions on episode one of season two of The Unidentified, and it's not a watch long this time, we're just going to quickly share our thoughts on the show, what happened, what we think, and then we're going to be discussing your thoughts, your opinions from Twitter, from Facebook, I've had a lot of DMs about the show, people want me to bring up different points that they have, different opinions, so that'll be really interesting as well, so look out for that later on this week folks. Again, that'll be on early access on Patreon, and of course you'll get preferential questioning on Patreon as well, as a little thank you for supporting the show, but no doubt I'll manage to squeeze everyone's questions in and opinions anyway. So again, that's all coming up in the next week or so. Folks, just before we get into our interview with Buddy from Alien Protocols, I'd just like you to listen to a quick message from another friend of the show. Have you ever looked up to the skies and seen something you can't explain? Or walked deep in the forest and sensed something watching you? 
Do you believe in an afterlife or a hidden veil that can communicate with the living? Then you need Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Download all issues completely free at shadowsmagazine.co.uk. Shadows of Your Mind, where your search for the answers begins. Okay, folks, coming back from that message, we have our guest on this week's show. He is an experiencer, consciousness not. That's a hard thing to say in a Scottish accent again. Um, <laughs> PSI practitioner. Is it Psy or PSI practitioner? Psy. Psy. I thought so. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. So Psy practitioner, ufologist, remote viewer, among many other things. We've got Buddy, the host of Alien Protocols on YouTube. Buddy, how are you this evening? Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate no, your time. It's an absolute pleasure. This is a, a slight sidetrack from, from recent guests. I've had a lot of chat around the UFO subject and topic, and that's something we're definitely going to speak on. But I've said from the beginning, remote viewing was something I was really interested in, and it's been great to get in touch with yourself. And uh, Jenna on Twitter was the person who kind of sent me in your direction. So again, that's um, it's really good to kind of get in touch with you. So... Um, Well, they are connected even. UFOs and remote viewing have a very intimate connection. and We'll get into that more uh, as we discuss. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they they do a very strong connection. So I want to start off, buddy, just by discussing a little bit about your background. Um, When you first got an inkling, you had any particular gifts? And what kind of led you to kind of this point? Um, Well, when I was a kid, I knew I had, you know, uh, precognizant dreams and I had the ability to see things in the future and influence things around me. And uh, my mother was very, very intuitive. And uh, she encouraged my intuition and, you know, told me always to believe in my first gut instinct, uh, my first intuition, which remote viewers called a gestalt. And uh, that's the most accurate information you get is usually your gestalt. The very first thing that comes to you from a point of stillness. And um, it's just stunningly accurate stuff. So I've started, you know, basically as a child, and I've always played with it and explored. And um, for me, it was more, I was doing what's considered now to be astral projection, which is, you know, in my mind, flying to locations and seeing them and hovering above them or hovering over someone's shoulder. And um, so it's, it's always kind of been there. And then I've trained myself in other abilities over time because I think these, all these abilities are really kind of connected. And this is science. This isn't woo-woo. This isn't, you know, imaginary. This isn't, you know, fanciful, spiritual, you know, um, something that's not tangible. I believe all this stuff, and so do the researchers, that this, is, this phenomena is reflective of a deeper science that we just don't know the science to yet. Oftentimes, a new science will present itself the very first time as a phenomena. And then as the phenomena is demystified, it becomes science. Uh, 200 years ago, a scientist named Volta took a whole bunch of paranormal and strange phenomena that was happening at the time and united them into the electromagnetic field and brought a sense of reality and logic and physics to these strange you know, occurrences that were happening. And I believe, and so do many others, that this ability and the associated abilities around it 
from the power of prayer to healings to uh, psychokinesis, they all are reflective of some type of field. It's a field that has a tremendous amount of information and connects all space and time. So, um, you know, I taught myself the different abilities over time and found myself uh, just drawn into situations and working for a wide variety of really interesting uh, companies, organizations, governmental stuff, and, uh, and much more. That's amazing. So you mentioned early on precognitive dreams. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more what exactly you mean by that and uh, what um, my interpretation is that you're, you're dreaming things that then come to fruition? Correct, correct. I, one of the earliest ones I remember is we had a swinging bench and I had a precognition of my mother and my brother on the bench and the chain breaking and it falling. And um, I had told my mother about that and she thought that was very interesting. And then within a day or two, that's exactly what happened. So, uh, so. That, that's pretty cool. And something else you mentioned along with that was astral projection. Would correct. you... Would you say you astral project again within like a dream state or is that something you practice through meditation and leave the body? It's meditation through and leave the body and it's nothing associated with sleep. Um, It's during, you know, the daytime, you're completely cognizant of what's going on. And um, there's different types. Sometimes the quote unquote signal is very strong and it's very vivid and the experience is filled with synesthesia and smells and sounds and you see images that flash in front of your eyes you're almost compelled to close your eyes so you can see these images better and other times it comes very sublime as information from nothingness once you clear your mind and still your mind um and find this point of complete blankness complete nothingness the first things that come to your mind are you know a gestalt and you write these down and those are the psychic impressions Great. What age would you say it really started ramping up for you? If you're saying this happened from being a young child, was it your teenage years and people talk about puberty and all those kind of hormones kicking about in your body is when these things can really come to come to the forefront? Is that when it happened for you? What sort of age? I think a few different times. I think <clears throat> right around puberty, around that age, it started happening. And then it happened more in my late teens. And then after my mother's passing, I got tremendous amount more then as well okay now that's any incidents growing up that you recall back to and I'm, I'm not talking about you know what we might see in some kind of superhero movie or horror film where you're in some uh, canteen and you make everything fly off the benches but was there anything <laughs> you remember that maybe happened that was particularly traumatizing or it was maybe a more positive experience growing up um i don't remember anything traumatizing i've always had positive experiences around all of this stuff i prefer not to let any negativity into my mind at all in any way. So I've never had any negative experiences in any of the esoteric stuff or, you know, the ufology type stuff. But I remember um, trying to move a painting in my room, in my bedroom as a kid and trying to move it with my mind and trying to move it. And then I fell asleep. And when I woke up in the morning, it was tilted and turned. And I was like, that's really unusual. Did I, sleepwalk or something or or how did that happen and then over time i found that i had the ability to influence things a little bit there were times where i was able to push a marble and i didn't i it it was not consistent but when it happened it was just like electric you know um 
So it's never, you know, these abilities are like any of your other senses. They're not perfect. They're not flawless. You know, it's not like a superhero, but um, the more you work on them, the more consistent they become. Yeah, I think some of the phrasing you've used and later on we've got one of my listener questions is latent abilities. So this is something you very much believe we've, we've all got inside of us already and it's just yeah. bringing it out and how you come about doing that, yeah? Exactly, exactly. Was there anyone you looked to growing up? Because again, this is something that is is quite different from most people's childhoods that they realise they've got these gifts. I mean, I walked along the street and pretended I could move a crisp packet that was only blowing in the wind and we've all kind of done those things as a kid and blinked yeah. and tried to make a light turn off and that was one of your YouTube videos I saw recently. We've all tried it, but for, for the 99%, 99.9% even, it, it never works. But for you, this is something that you honed. So was there anyone you looked to growing up in those fields and in those areas. I'm, I'm thinking names like Ingo Swan, Uri Geller. Exactly. You nailed it. You were psychic yourself. That's Ingo Swan is at the top of my list. Um, but uh, there's a lot of people that go all the way back to the Yoga Sutras, you know, 2,000 years ago, like uh, Nargajuna, who said, if you still your mind like the surface of a lake, you can reflect the universe. And in the Yoga Sutras, they spoke a lot about these abilities that on the path of virtue, these abilities present themselves and these uh, different uh, monks would be able to communicate with another monk who's, you know, thousands of miles away or, uh, you know, heal an injured child. Uh, so, you know, in terms of influences, there's never been a lot. And there's also, you know, there's a great impediment to exploring this topic. There's a lot of, you know, BS with this topic. I've never wanted to be, you know, famous. I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to do TV shows or movies based on this stuff. I'd rather be like an Ingo Swan, someone who searched out researchers to try and get to the heart of what's going on here um, and to try and, you know, leave information behind that others would find useful. And to help with the research, to nail down this field or whatever the exact physics is. So I really tried, especially in the past you know, years, to make my abilities uh, strong enough so that uh, they're dependable when uh, confronted with a challenge in front of a researcher or while under pressure. So um, that's always been a real important thing to me. And is that something you've found that you, you can at will rise to the occasion when you have to, when you're, when you're faced with a researcher or I was going to say a skeptic, but I suppose you have nothing to prove to a skeptic, but someone like a researcher who wants to look at the data, the science, really see what this is and, you know, what's, what's the practicalities of this, this kind of ability and how can, we, how can we make this more, how can we bring it to more people? What sort of occasions have you had to? Have you got any you would, you would discuss? Tons of them. Tons of them. Um, I've worked with scientists that were skeptical or some that partially believed. And then when you see it yourself, you know, you can watch a thousand videos and you, you can always assume of some sort of kind of trickery or, you know, video, you know, effects of some kind. But in person, when you see something over and over again, it's hard to dispute. Um, recently, I was at a lab in... Uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which is the rocketry and, and capital of the United States, basically, and with a very big uh, governmental organization behind it. And others were there and was um, uh, 
they asked me to go through several different machines to see if I could affect different machines. And one of the videos is on um, my YouTube channel where I affect a shielded compass. And um, the first machine I was working on, but we didn't get a video of this one, was a, um, an electrostatic detector. And for the first like 10 minutes, I couldn't get, you know, it, sometimes it takes time and you have to have patience. And I couldn't get it to go. And um, someone said something to me. Uh, like one of the scientists was like taunting me, you know, like, you want to give up yet? And I was like, no way. I'm just starting to get the feel of the character of this funny machine. And within a couple of minutes, the, it started moving and kept moving and kept moving and kept moving beyond the point of, you know, any uh, chance or, you know, any outside interference. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been challenged a lot and tested a lot from bending metal screwdrivers in front of people and scientists and reporters and stuff without touching them. You can hold the handle, but wave your hand over the part that you want in the way you want it to bend and it would bend. And, uh, you know, this stuff, it's so extraordinary. It's so outside of most people's daily experiences that it's really logical and easy to negate its possibility. But, uh, the shocking and astonishing truth is that this stuff is real. You met, you mentioned growing up. So I, I nailed Ingo Swan from your point of view. I also mentioned Uri Geller. Now, Ingo Swan, you mentioned, was someone who sought out the researchers and really wanted to look at the scientific side of this. Would you say that an Uri Geller, who's maybe more famous here in the UK um, for being a bit of a celebrity, he's done a lot of TV shows over the years, do you have anything against someone like that who... I kind of do. Yeah. I, I kind of do. Um, and recently he said he was going to... Uh, remote influence Theresa May um, about uh, Brexit. And, um, you know, I wrote him and said, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. You know, you can't do it. It won't work. You know, and if anything, I'll, I'll try and stop you, you know. And she ended up voting for it like five times or something. So he had failed consistently in that one. But he's always been a performer. And I believe he's been mixing magic tricks with this stuff. And um, you don't need to mix the magic tricks. You know, you have to be willing to fail because sometimes you will fail. But if you watch enough, you will see things that are so miraculous, so statistically beyond the realm of probability that you are left kind of gobsmacked. Yeah, there's another incident famously a couple of years ago where Uri Geller uh, claimed to have moved a football from a penalty spot or a soccer game for those listening in the US with it, with his mind um, to help the English national football team out. So yeah, I definitely think there's an element of showmanship and character there that's maybe more fitting of an ancient aliens than, than any other type of show. But yeah, no, so you've, you've, you've got those two different paths that an Ingo Swan and an Uri Geller kind of obviously went and there's, the and there's careers. straight up there's straight up scam artists too, you know, the neon light psychics um even though they may have real insights and they may have their natural ability like everyone have and produce real information oftentimes they're associated with scams and money scams and all of that so i make a big effort not to charge for any of the stuff that i do people are welcome to, to give donations if they find our work helpful but um you know we don't charge and i don't charge and i teach for free and um unless it's like a private class or something so um 
you know, it's really important to me to make, try to maintain as much integrity in this mysterious field as possible. Yeah, and I think the integrity definitely helps the credibility side of things, like like you say. So again, what sort of practice and training goes into nourishing those abilities? So we know you've hit puberty and late teens, and you're, you're starting to do more and more, looking things like static, pushing a marble, those sorts of things. How do you exactly. harness how do you harness those and get the most out of those abilities? Well, some you just have to try for the first time. You just have to push it. Like the first time I tried to do a healing. Um, it was a sick dog that we had and, um, I just tried and prayed and, you know, those, and I'm, I consider myself a Christian. And so I pray and I consider all these gifts from God. I don't, you know, there's a lot of, uh, evangelicals who find this sort of thing evil or demonic or whatever, but I find that really ironic as someone who believes all of these are just, you know, the gifts that God has given us. So, um, you know, you try something and then you keep trying it. And you try to hone it and improve it. And over time, if you're tenacious enough, you'll see the results. And sometimes it's a lot faster than you think. You know, the first time I tried to bend metal, um, I was almost like giggling at myself, like, how silly is this? You know, what am I trying to do? And um, when it started to move and bend, you get this whole sensation over your body. It's almost like goosebumps and you, you get warm. And it's, it's almost because, you know, it's just so exciting and thrilling and unbelievable and amazing. And um, you, it just, you know, it's self-rewarding. Patience and tenacity are self-rewarding with the results that come from it. Um, I've worked with a couple of big companies and big groups and well-known um, associations and sometimes at the beginning typically at the beginning it's a feeling out process so it's not like boom out of the gates I'm you know kicking butt um, sometimes it is but most of the time it's more a sense of trying to get a sense of the signal the location like a tuning fork trying to find the frequency of another tuning fork um, where if you don't have the right note it's not going to quite sync but the second you get the right frequency they're both humming and vibrating you know across a distance okay so there's a lot there and everything being connected and i know that's something that you've you've talked about a lot and a lot of other people have and i think particularly the last couple of years i've seen if we want to talk a little bit about the ufo subject more and more this idea that everything's connected we're not looking at aliens from another planet hopping in a, a flying saucer and coming to say hello there's more to it with this phenomena rather than just extraterrestrials necessarily as well which for me is becoming more and more more and more of the way i'm thinking about it so i want to just and that's cut. really the truth yeah yeah and i'm going to get to some of that as well and there's some of this that for me it makes a lot more sense than We've got one group of aliens coming to visit us who are technologically advanced, and that's it. As you start to see some of the the testimony from pilots, what they're seeing, some of the videos that are online that are as camera phones get better, and you're getting 4K and 8K videos of some of these shape shifting entities in the sky. It's clear that that's not a physical saucer or that's not a ship, but then some of these things are. So it's, it's definitely evolving the way I'm thinking about it as well. You know. Um, the obvious connection between the UFOs and this, these abilities and phenomena like the Skinwalker Ranch and haunted houses and things like that is consciousness. And like I was saying before about there being some sort of a field, if there is a field, some sort of substructure underneath this reality, kind of like the electromagnetic field was, that has a connection to every place, every time. 
then you would think an advanced civilization would understand that field and that technology very well and um, utilize it as well. You would, it would almost mandate that advanced technology would. I'm going to give a really a crass example here, so forgive me, but do you mean when you talk about a field, something like Star Wars, where you've got the Force, do you mean something like that that's behind everything, or is it something else? It's like an electro, the electromagnetic field um, is something that's invisible. Humans have lived around it, you know, our entire existence, but we couldn't define it, we couldn't see it unless rare circumstances like lightning bolts or static electricity when you walk across a carpet or rub two fabrics together. Um, it's a law and a structure that makes up our reality that's not visually tangible, but is uh, observable or is, it presents itself under certain very specific conditions. So um, there's a belief in physics a big debate about uh, the role that consciousness plays in reality. The famous two-slit experiments and, and many others where physicists are not sure why observation seems to literally affect space, time, and matter. But it's definitively scientifically true that the observation of subatomic particles affects their reality. And not just that you're seeing them or that if you're using, you know, lights to bounce off of them to identify their location. Um, it's much deeper than that. They've done all sorts of experiments. And it, it's proven that consciousness and reality are essentially interwoven like a tapestry. So it's not space, time, matter, and energy first or consciousness first, as many different people in this field um, hypothesize, I believe it's a tapestry, that they're both interwoven very deeply. Um, you can't have uh, a consciousness without energy, space, time, and matter, and energy, space, time, and matter are completely meaningless if there's no consciousness to observe it. Um, so it's like the classic, you know, if a bear poops in the woods, um, you know, or a tree falls in the woods, yeah. and no one's watching or no one sees the poop, um, did it happen? And uh, physics has told us that mm, something called a superposition, which is kind of unusual. And superposition means it did happen and it didn't happen simultaneously. And it's not determined until it's observed. Um, so um, It's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat type thing. That the, exactly. The cat in the box. Is the cat dead? Is the cat there? Is the cat turned yes. into a two-headed dragon? We don't know. It might have, but we can't see it. So Yes, and it's in fact way. both. You know, it's, it's kind of both. They're in this superposition until an observation causes reality to make a decision. So um, we're just beginning to understand consciousness and its role in the physical world. How do you define consciousness yourself? Um, in the most basic definition, it's an awareness of your surroundings. And different creatures have different levels of consciousness. Um, some might say because an amoeba can react to its environment, um, that maybe it has consciousness. I, mean, I, I don't know about that, but obviously animals have consciousness down to the smallest sizes. Um, so um, it's something that I don't completely understand myself. I don't understand the complete parameters of it, but I'm an explorer of it. 
that's for certain. I think what's for certain as well is we're all exploring it. We might not be aware we're exploring it, but we're all here. So for some yeah. reason, whether we chose it and we don't know it or not, that we're experiencing the same thing potentially. So um, I want to touch on remote viewing. So what would you say if someone asked you, you know, point blank, what exactly is remote viewing? How would you explain it? I would explain it simply as it is a seven page process. That's very deliberative and very, um, it has very specific instructions for every point throughout the process. And it is a way to see distant places and things and times without being there. And it was basically invented in its modern form by Ingo Swan, working with SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and the CIA. And there was a very active program for 20 years with the CIA and remote viewers doing amazing, staggering feats. And Ingo was one of the best of all of them. There's a great documentary out now called Third Eye Spies, directed it, yeah. by Lance Munguia. And it really takes you through the facts and the evidence and the amazing stories. And in fact, I've been speaking with um, Lance for a while and him and this uh, head scientist from an organization had been testing me and they tested me three times, surprised me out of nowhere. And, you know, I, I, I got a home run on all three of them, uh, really staggering results. I mean, if I was going to throw it out there, would the scientists be Hal Putov and would the organization be TTSA or would you not be able to say that? Um, I'll say no to that, but the okay. scientists, it's, it's come out, the information has come out and uh, Skinwalker Ranch, I've worked with them for two years now, the head scientist, Eric Bard there. I will hold off on that because I have a whole section on that for you. So yeah, uh, Great. that's that's good to know though. Um, so when you talked about the, the project that had gone on with the CIA and Third Eye Spies, just for those who haven't seen it, like you say, is a great documentary, great piece of filmmaking, and it's now available on Amazon Prime, uh, included with a Prime subscription, or you can rent it. I rented it when it first came out. Um, so it's well worth the £2.49 or four dollars whatever that might be over in the us so definitely recommend watching that but the that would be project stargate and you're looking at russell targ and hal putov who is now obviously with ttsa as well and they've done some incredible work with the likes of ingo swan and others like you say who maybe aren't as famous um so and they trained people out of nowhere soldiers they took a soldier um named uh, joe mcmonagall and trained him in it, and he became one of the very best. He was also a great graphic artist, so he was able to render beautiful, very specific drawings of stuff. That's just staggering. Some of the information, when you see the movie, you're like, it's, it's you know, every time it happens with me, I'm staggered by it. It's, it's wondrous. It's, it's really, really incredible. And would you say remote viewing, because this is something that I've just seen more recently as well, that it's not necessarily always seeing an exact picture in your head, that if, if you're given a target and the target's going to be the Eiffel Tower, you don't always necessarily see the Eiffel Tower and you can point that out, but you would describe it and it would be a feeling and it would be descriptions and what's round about it and you would see, a, rather than, you know, it's a tower, it's a point and it's got legs and is that how it works? Yes, it, you know, and in fact, for some reason, and they say you're not supposed to try to name the target. You're supposed to try and give all the feelings around it, what it's composed of, and the environment. And, and as you go through the process more and more, these details come out, 
And with the full CRV, controlled remote viewing method, you can even use clay um, and stuff as one of the very advanced techniques. And when you're done, the images, you don't try and say what it is, you draw it, and sometimes it'll be apparent, oh, that's a volcano, or oh, that's the Eiffel Tower, or, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, Notre Dame, or, you know, uh, the Colosseum. And, um, you know, technically you're not supposed to name them, but as you get more advanced, that ability does present itself, where you can name targets and really nail targets. Um, on my YouTube channel, you can see a bunch of different you know, experiences that have happened recently where, you know, I, I specifically nailed the target and it's, it's always baffling and, and exciting and thrilling and wondrous. Yeah. I watched some of yours and also someone who I think you're working with just now is Omar. Um, who, yes, Omar. He's great. I, I love the text messages and I think it's up on your Twitter feed as well at alien protocols for people to see, but it, the description sounds really confusing at first, but then when you see the actual picture, that he manages to describe it's perfect the whole concept of feeling like there's kneeling involved and yes it's one of the is that an egyptian goddess yes it was hathor and in fact the text of course was a lot longer and he was i'd never met omar before i just you know through online and stuff like that and he was just trying to, to challenge me and test if i was the real deal or not so he only gave me a target number the only information i had was eight digits eight numbers and those represent the target they used to use longitude and latitude and things like that but then people could memorize longitude and latitude and get a sense of where things were so they advanced it to just strictly what's called a target number and so with controlled remote viewing you get just a target number and uh the information just flows and that one just it just flowed it was strange details like it's an ancient depiction of something older and uh, there was a white cow in it and there was kneeling and uh, vines the i'm feeling like a little thin vines of ivy and all those things were present in and you know you can watch the video and see and it, it was a dead ringer um and a few weeks before that the uh, scientists from that uh, location and lance mungia had called me out of nowhere with another target and I had nailed that one too. It was electrical wiring. And in my drawings, the wirings were coming out of a, like a roof, uh, like a lighting fixture. So it was just the hole and the wirings come out and bent at a 45 degree angle. And I had drawn them doing just that, bending at the 45 degree angle and, and said that it was electrical wires. Yeah, I always find that fascinating. And as was it Ingo Swan? And if I'm wrong, I'll edit this out to make myself look better. But was it Ingo <laughs> Swan that was famously asked to? It was. It was. I'm sure it was the U.S. military, something like that, and to pinpoint a target. And they thought he'd gotten the target <coughs> wrong, but what they'd actually pinpointed was U.S. nuclear submarine positions out in the sea. Yeah, am I getting that They're, right? Yeah, you're, you're right. They've also done had targets and. They, uh, this is a famous story about Pat Price, who was one of the famous ones. He was a police detective who utilized his abilities to bust criminals. And he was one of the very few who could do level seven, phase seven targets. And those are the most difficult, like uh, a sentence or words, um, very highly detailed information. And so they had a target on a hill for them and he said, wait, there's something else more interesting. Just a couple miles 
a mile and a half away up the hill here, and it ended up being a secret CIA listening post. He not only described the area, but he went inside one of the offices, opened up one of the files, and named different file programs, folders of them. And they were all, I think, related to billiards. And it was a, they nailed it. And it was so frightful that the CIA had to reassess the entire program to see what they were doing, if, you know, something fishy was going on, if it was, you know, some spy network or something. Um, so the, the CIA even had, you know, uh, controllers and assessors come in every year and try and, you know, see the value of this program. And what they learned to do, what Russell uh, learns to do, was to teach the assessor how to do basic remote viewing, and they would do a target. And they did incredibly well, you know, for their very first time, and so that helped them continue the program for 20 years. It's the sort of thing that would be rubbished in documentation, and and it's kind of played down. Do you think it's still something, though, that's widely used in the background in these sorts of organizations and still something they pursue? Not widely used, but it is definitely used. Okay. Um, what are some of the things that you've remote viewed that you could talk about that? I don't want to use the word interesting because it's all particularly interesting, but from from a, a UFO or alien point of view, have you ever tried to remote view something off Earth on a different you planet? Know, the first thing, and I always, this was very important for me, is to increase my accuracy on verifiable targets first. So if you know your accuracy on a verifiable target, when you have a unverifiable target, at least you'll have a general idea how accurate you are. So after I'd really established that for myself, um, then I started venturing into more and more of the UFO stuff. But some of those just came up with targets. Um, Grant Cameron's assistant had a target for me and was testing me. And um, uh, I drew the drawing and my gestalt was a spaceship in space with a, a big planet right next to it and another yellow a yellow sun and a, a blue kind of sun and the craft kind of going across it like this. And I kept saying, Oh, this is so stupid. I'm going to be, you know, she's going to, I'm going to fail. She's going to think I'm an idiot. And it was an exact replica of the picture um, that she had. So um, that was a really neat one. I've done a bunch of stuff in that area from UFO bases to the Nimitz incident to underwater stuff to stuff on other planets, um, to, uh, to moons of Jupiter. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff. In fact, I was just um, on the phone with Linda Moulton Howe, and I had done a series of remote viewings about um, a craft that had crashed in Brazil and um, the U.S. program there. So I was able to describe the craft and the occupants. and, and much Was more. that the, the recent crash in June, the Magi UFO? Yes. Yep. Yep. I've done a bit of a bonus episode on, on the, the night after it broke because Twitter was lighting up around a whole lot of nothing potentially, but then it was, there was just more and more clips coming out. And um, Arthur Iglesias, who is a, lives in the UK, but a Brazilian native, was translating the Portuguese, I believe it was, and letting us know this is what they're saying and these people are really panicked and something has happened. And I've done a bit I of didn't... a summary. I hadn't heard about it, you know, I, you know, pardon my ignorance until she told me about it, you know, today, basically. And all I got was a longitude and latitude. And, you know, I just, just, you know, did a very long viewing. And I think that's going to air on her channel tomorrow night. 
Okay. For his so, files. so from from what I had looked at initially, then um, something potentially crashed near a munitions base where they basically make make ammunition. However, there wasn't meant to be any activity really at the time near the base. Nothing outside the normal. And mm. after this, um, there was there been lights in the sky for a few nights apparently. There and there's a few different videos on there. Some of them are unfortunately fakes from previous events or carnivals or drone shows but they were interspliced with some of the actual footage that people had taken so wow. this, this object had crashed and it looks quite um forest the, the area looked quite forestry um and then you can see the smoke coming from the hills after that it went kind of quiet and then there was rumors that there was a lot of u.s presence there that the u.s military had gone in cleaned things up and it was very much it disappeared Reddit shut it down and it was removed off of Reddit. There was a lot of admins um, blocking, and I'm, I'm not a big Reddit user. Some people might be surprised to know that, but it's something I've just never really got around to, to getting into. But Reddit started banning a lot of the phrases like Magi UFO, OVNI Magi, which is obviously the Portuguese for UFO. Um, so yeah, that it became a bit of a overnight sensation and then really quickly disappeared. But that's interesting that, um, that there's been more kind of came of it and is there anything you would say that you could say more on it that you did see? Absolutely. There is a crash. There are occupants. Um, uh, there is a U.S. program that used to be more international. Now it's more just the United States uh, in South America uh, because there's a long history of essentially like an E.T. highway that flies over Peru and into the rainforest of Brazil. And... Um, it's been going on for a long time. It may even be the cause of the giant animal glyphs on, in NASCA. But this has been going on for a long time, and there's other you know, whistleblowers in the military who've spoken about this project and program. So it was a little bit about the project and the program and the crash and the crash retrieval and where they took the crash afterwards. They took it to a, a way station base in Peru, and then from there they took the biological the samples, let's say, um, beings and the craft, they flew it in one of those giant sea whatever's Hercules. It was refueled in the air and they flew it straight to Wright Patterson Air Base. And um, Wright Pat, uh, there were some leaked documents in budgetary stuff that was very strong evidence that there is a space uh, base, essentially, a space command under Wright Pat. And they had several levels of biological containment. And the U.S. had just put, I think, you know, like $500 million into the improvement of the um, containment of the labs in there or something. So, uh, you know, that's basically what happened with that. And that the biological stuff stayed there. And that the craft was then, after a couple of days, transported to Tonopah, which is another base. Did you see anything to do with one of these occupants being shot? Because that was one of the rumors yeah. at the time. There was a gunshot. They were shot. all shot, ultimately, right. yeah. There was all gunshots heard. Shot. Yeah, that was one thing that came out from the locals, that they heard a round of gunshots after the military had apparently gone to the area, and they were certain that these things had been had been shot. So that's, that's yeah. particularly interesting as well, yeah. And one of the uh, beings apparently survived for a few hours after being shot and was speaking in Portuguese. 
It's so, um, very, very human, isn't it? To, uh, you know, well, welcome to Earth and Will Smith punches you in the face or you right? know, the, US, the, the US military <laughs> turn know, up and shoot you. What I've said so many times is like, you know, militaries want to, and men especially, we want to take something and smash it and see how it's made, you know, but will we learn more from a broken watch? Will we learn more from an entire perfect watch? Or would we learn more from talking to the watchmakers? You know, I think we've made the very poor decision of trying to just smash the watches and not be smart enough to make the communications with these advanced craft that they've been reaching out to us. There's many, many incidents in UFO history of craft mimicking people, either with, you know, someone will flash a flashlight twice, like Allagash, and it'll flash twice, and then it'll wait for the next advancement of communication and we don't know what to do, and they're on a mission, and so they get bored, and they're like, oh, this will take too long, and go off to their mission. Even the Nimitz incident, the famous one of late, the craft was physically mimicking the jet fighter, counter-rotating, and, you know, there's... uh, It just takes a little bit more patience, I think, and tenacity and brain power to make that communication happen, but I think... You know, we're so desperate for this advanced technology that we're willing to do anything. And even Luis Elizondo said, you know, South America is very hot right now. And Luis Elizondo, who's, you know, the the ex-government guy who's now at TTSA, um, has a very, a speech, I think it was in Spain, where he said, you know, the most important work right now is going on in South America, and I really can't say anymore. So... Something I will say is um, I interviewed Anthony Lippe, who's the executive producer of the Unidentified Documentary Series. Now, oh, interesting. this interview with you won't go out for another week or two. My interview Ooh. with Anthony is allowed to go out. Uh, I've got permission from the network tomorrow, which would be the 8th of July. So um, in preparation for the new series. And Anthony, as people will hear, given this interview is going to be out after the, the series starts, was very, very good in what he talked about to do with the new series. And he talked at length about Luis Elizondo traveling to South America. And he would not name the countries. But he did say it's a huge part of the series. And he goes there for very, very important talks with some national leaders. And there's a whole area of the the show based there. So that's interesting you say that about South America and I know that's a strong part of the series coming up. And there is what was a secret program, like I was saying before, that's taking place in South America with basically these teams. That's a special unit and there's other locations for them across the world. Um, And uh, this is their job to get these materials first. And, uh, It's very, this is a very complex tapestry. A lot of interweaving agencies, groups, organizations, and, you know, information. So this is a question that I'll have to ask you then, given your ability to see these things. Why do these objects crash? Well, it seems like many of the crashes have been essentially gifts And if you look at how many have crashed around the world, they seem to be gifts without a way of scaring us too much. These crashed objects would be there. And you wonder, well, what is the purpose of the gift? Is the gift so we can learn to get off the planet? Is the gift the technology that's on these craft that could help 
you know, our, our environment and our planet and our species? Or is it undeniable physical proof that advanced civilizations exist, which is a very, very powerful piece of evidence? So for Absolutely. me, I think, you know, I, I, the most... No, go ahead, please. No, I, I just want to follow up that... I, I'm all for these things potentially being gifts, or you know, like it's like loot drops. If you're a if you're a gamer, you know that you're getting this gift dropped in here. Here's how choose how you use it wisely. But if these things have biological entities on board, are we saying that these things that the they are they're dispensable? That they're potentially clones, and that you know, if you're going to crash something, they're you can't guarantee they survive. Beings. Okay. Yes, they're second generation beings that were created for space flight and stuff. But not all of the craft are gifts. They come here to this planet because you would imagine being a really advanced race, the most valuable thing in the universe is not monatomic gold or any element that they could find in greater amounts other places in the universe. The most valuable thing is data, information. Knowledge is power. Information is power. And life forms are one of the densest forms of data there is. It's not just the life form, it's uh, their environment, their interaction with their habitat, their, their consciousness, their interactions with others of their species, and on and on and on and on. And to me, it's a testament to God's amazing universal biology that advanced civilizations would even need to look at our plant life. They, they couldn't foresee it. They couldn't foresee this chance and that chance. No, there's so many complex things that have created the unique species that are on this planet that are similar to many others around the universe, but are uniquely precious to Earth. So um, there's been a very long history of UFOs scanning forests, scanning woods, and going to the rainforest, which is the densest area for life on the diverse life on the planet awesome no that's good that was uh, slightly off the track i was going to go down but that was really interesting you brought up uh, brazil so some really good conversation there thank you um so just to kind of round off the because i'm going to touch back on some of this stuff um if someone wanted to explore remote viewing or um sci abilities what would you recommend how do they start how do they get into it um, it's easy. There's certain videos. There's a great video um, from Prudence Calabrese. It's, she has like five videos. You just watch the first one with a pen and a pad, and she'll walk you through the process. And during that um, uh, episode, you get to do your very first remote viewing. And then there's the best teacher I think now is Dr. Simeon Heim, who um, has his, his website is newcrystalmind.com. And I've taken several of his classes, and um, he's just a great, great teacher. You can go to that newcrystalmind.com site and get a bunch of free information. And, of course, you can take classes. But I'd be very careful about, you know, what classes you take, when, where, et cetera. How would you like to see remote viewing or these abilities integrated into society as it stands in 2020? Well, I think, you know, we teach our kids and our kids have physical education growing up. I think they should have consciousness education. And there's a lot of benefits to it. So much of this ability, all of these abilities, kind of boil down to empathy. And like I was saying with the tuning forks, if you 
you empathize with something, if you connect with it, if you try and resonate with it, information and data starts flowing once you make that connection, like the two tuning forks reaching the right frequency. So if we taught kids empathy and that they could learn superpowers, essentially, I think there'd be a lot less school shootings and we would know how each other feel. We would care how each other feel. I think human potential is so much more than we have allowed ourselves. So I would love to see us explore human potential unbridled, free, unchained, without any sense of shame, without any judgment, um, you know, or, or, or mockery. So people would have the right to, or kids would have the right to fail big. And it helps not just with this stuff, with psychic stuff. If you give them a space to learn and they can fail really big, you may get the best dance ever or the best architecture ever or the best music ever. Um, so to me, it ultimately boils down so much to human potential. And I think those abilities should be very calmly and without woo-woo and, you know, over-the-top spiritualism, they should be encouraged. Mm -hmm. Because it's one of our senses. You know, grandma, everyone's grandma has the sense of intuition, you know, would say, don't do this or this will happen. And you'll be like, all right, grandma. And then yeah. it happens the next day. And you're like, how did grandma know? You know? Mm -hmm. And um, we know through many years of, you know, studies that the power of prayer works over distances. We know a lot of these little pieces. We just haven't put it all together yet. But we're close and we're, I think there's a little bit less shame nowadays to explore this as there was maybe 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. So one of your own philosophies, and I take this from your bio and from your videos and, you know, just getting the last couple of weeks, a sense of kind of what you do and what you stand for. There's a lot of talk of, you know, everything's connected, a lot of on love, um, a lot of oneness and a lot of consciousness. Do you think humanity, where we stand as a species, is anywhere near ready for that next step? To, to have that in its thinking? You know, as technology grows, it gets more and more dangerous and more and more powerful. And spiritually, we haven't grown that much as our technology is growing and our technology is growing faster and faster. And it, in fact, it becomes more and more dangerous to, you know, to us, to our, our race, you know, as obviously demonstrated by nuclear weapons and stuff. And it just... It's essential that we explore this stuff. You know, it's crucial to our future, I believe. And when these advanced races visited, visit us, there's so many stories of them using these abilities, communicating, you know, telepathically, uh, moving objects, knowing, having precognition of what people are going to be doing, reading their minds, all sorts of things like that. So I think, you know, it's, once we're able to nail it down as physics and take away the mystery and the spiritual fear and the phenomena aspect of it, it will be so much more useful than the electromagnetic field was and is for us. 200 years after it was discovered, after this guy squashed all the phenomena and unified it into science, it's, you know, we couldn't live without the electromagnetic field now. And I have a feeling that, you know, if we make it 200 years in the future, uh, it will be one of our most used uh, aspects of reality. I think the way things are going in a minute, if we make it um, another year into the future, it would be an achievement. So 2020 has thrown a lot at us so far. 
Yeah, who knows how long we'll survive, but it's not looking good. So just to start wrapping up then, um, I want to talk about your, I've got the word work down here, but I noticed you actually changed it yourself to play, that you weren't working on Skinwalker Ranch, it was more play. So (laughs) your play on Skinwalker Ranch recently was acknowledged by Brandon Fugel. What was that experience like? Oh, just, I'm still interacting with them and playing with the head scientist and it's been the most amazing experiences of my entire life and the most broadening of my horizons and increase of my abilities and exploration of these abilities. And it's been for two years, you know, it was a real big secret for a long time. And I couldn't talk about, you know, working with the head scientist there. And um, it has just been a wonderful experience. Um, How did it come about you getting involved with Skinwalker Ranch? It's a long convoluted story, but I've always had a tendency to try and help people and help groups. And, you know, I have every day I go for a patrol, I call it, and I try and find a homeless person and help them or someone in need and help them. And there was a a scam uh, that was going on. And um, I'd helped a group of people. And one of the people just happened to be the owner of Skinwalker Ranch. And that friendship grew uh, and grew and it was just based on friendship and honor and decency and doing the right thing. And I found the integrity of Brandon to be absolutely, you know, incredible. And for such a wealthy, influential gentleman to take the time to, you know, be patient with uh, me and to introduce me to his head scientist and allow me to play and explore, um, has been absolutely incredible. And some of the most amazing things I've ever experienced in my entire life have been associated with uh, that work. Anything you can talk about? Sure. Um, Everything from incredibly strong psychokinetic events to um, a two-hour remote viewing with over 20 targets and they were all stunningly, like unusually, stunningly, creepily <laughs> accurate to working with specialty machines built just for the exploration of these abilities um, and much more. Had you ever remote viewed the ranch previously before you got involved? No, no. Was that just out of no interest or is it because it had never been approached? Um, I just, I was doing other things and, you know, it it really hadn't uh, come up, you know, for me. For you, now that you've been there and had those experiences, what is the importance of Skinwalker Ranch you talk about in South America, having an ET superhighway going across? What's the importance of Skinwalker Ranch? Ultimately, I think it's consciousness and the power of consciousness and that there is a real, there's a real physics going on here. There's a real field going on here and um there is a classic mystery that ufos demonstrate and also phenomena like skinwalker demonstrate i'll just mention three of them one is that they're precognizant both ufos seem to know where the jet pilot's going to go with the nimitz he knew the next waypoint at skinwalker they know the phenomena knows what you're going to do next and is able to defeat it and was able to defeat you know, 20 years worth of the best scientists. Also, it has a tendency, both UFOs and the phenomena, of mimicking, mimicking you. 
UFOs will mimic you, mimic your movements and things like that. At Skinwalker, um, the phenomena will oftentimes present itself as a reflection of your inner psyche, your psychology. If you're militarized, you will have a militarized reaction. There's also the phenomena of if you see a UFO, oftentimes people talk about it following them home, meaning strange phenomena will follow them home. The same thing with Skinwalker. Many scientists and others have gone there, and then they had strange phenomena happening to them at home. And there's one thing that can explain that. It can follow you home if it's you. You know your future. You are precognizant of yourself. And the role of consciousness and this field and the presence of advanced civilizations all interweave. So, um, you know, for me, this is all, this is science. This isn't woo-woo. And Skinwalker really taught me that we know so little about our consciousness, but it certainly is interwoven with space, time, matter, and energy. Awesome. Uh, we'll, go, we'll move on to listener questions just uh, before we finish off. And I'd just like to say thank you to Mark, one of the listeners, because he was really interested in some of the stuff around Skinwalker Ranch, but that was going to be coming up anyway. So thank you, Mark. Um, thank so, you, Mark. Yeah, great questions. So um, first up is Jenna. And Jenna, I'd like to say thank you on the podcast because she was the one who put me in touch with yourself um, and gave me a heads up as to you're someone who I should be speaking to. Um, so I love Je- you, Jenna. Yeah, Jenna's awesome. Um, she does great readings as well on Twitter for people free of charge. So get in touch with Jenna. Um, she God had a really good lover. question. So hmm. uh, Jenna said, hearing that you've been working with some interesting groups recently, is there anything about the psi phenomenon you have found surprising? That I don't know the envelope. I don't know the ends of it. Hutchinson could transmute metals. Ted Owens could cast or call lightning bolts, definitively change the weather. Different psychics have demonstrated, and I don't even like to call them psychics even, psi practitioners have demonstrated incredibly powerful things, amazingly accurate things. I don't know the limit. And I've seen some incredible, mind-boggling stuff. Great question. Great answer. Thank you, Jenna. Um, Dan has two questions. One is very quick, but the first one would be, why do you think we are here? I think it might be a transcendence test. That our species and life forms are given life. You know, this universe is suspiciously constructed for life. If you look at a chicken farm, you know, you have to have the heat lamp and an area, and the chickens can live. And if you look at our universe, the suns are these power plants, energy sources, wonderfully placed, separated from each other by great distances with habitat, planets around them. And it just seems, for so many different reasons, suspiciously constructed for life. So I think our universe was constructed for life. And maybe... uh, there's some sort of transcendence possible if we are a good species. You can look at the Fermi paradox and the Fermi wall and our inability to communicate with other civilizations right now as a hint that not many people make that transcendence, not many species make that transcendence. So I hope we do. 
Thank you, Dan. And Dan's second question, Dan's a bit of a dog lover. He is asking, how is Miss Sausages? Oh, Miss Sausages, I could put the camera on her right now, but that she's 17 years old and she just soothes my soul and she's just the most wondrous, wondrous creature. She's really fragile now too. So, uh, you know, her love and affection really keeps me going and she has been just the most important thing to me. I'm a dog person too, so I, I can I can relate to that. Um, so we had Grace asked a question. Um, so many journalists and people in general have been arguing on Twitter, particularly the last few days, about the UFO and UAP subject. What would you say to them about their approach currently and the negativity? Um, that they are not doing quality research. If you deny the existence of UFOs and UAPs, you have just not done the basic research you're making more conjectures than you've done the actual research. There's research like Victor Vigiani got these documents, uh, indisputable documents from NORAD that talk about uh, intercepted tracks, unidentified tracks, tracks of interest, and uh, you know the Nimitz incident. The government just released three videos of these craft. Um, and it's easy to look at them as a threat but they haven't used this amazing technology to destroy us or do anything very negative as far as I can determine. Awesome. I've got one more question. I'm not too sure of the background on this one. Uh, Mike asked, is there any more information on the classified documents that were left in your car? Wow. Well, it's strange that you bring that up, Mike, because something else has come up recently about that. And um, They've been verified by one of Grant's uh, document guys, and they've been verified by others, and I've gotten into a little trouble over those things. And um, about six months ago, someone tried to slash, I still have a scar here, you can see, someone's tried to slash my throat from behind. Never met them before, so a Russian guy with a funny accent. And I kind of wondered if there was a connection between that or what. Um, but the documents still exist and they're being preserved and some of them are, are out. Some of them have sneaked out already. Um, some of the stuff has been given out um, to people as a, like a dead man's trigger. And uh, so they're still, they're there. Some of the information's already come out from those documents. I just haven't been identified as the source. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. One more question, buddy, um, before the quick fire round, if you don't mind. UFO Joe on Twitter asked, and let me read you the question. Oh, this is UFO. This guy doesn't like me. No. I know him because um, I had identified a witness from the Nimitz incident, and he felt I shouldn't have identified that person. So that's the question. Are you happy answering? He blocked me. No, you can keep this all in. I think, you know, transparency is really important. Okay. And I'd like to speak to UFO Joe. He's blocked me and doesn't like me and talks bad about me or whatever. And, you know, he's welcome to have his opinion. He comes from a different perspective. And, you know, whether I made a mistake in revealing, um, I won't say the name now, but I have in the past, who the real special witness is from the Nimitz incident that we don't know. The person hasn't come out, hasn't been identified, but people have outed other males that were involved in it. But this person is not a male, just to say. Yeah. And... I feel like even if what I did was a mistake, he should grant me my human frailty and say, well, maybe if he, you know, he made a mistake, I can, I can forgive him, you know? And, you know, he hasn't even done that. I think he's been very rude by not communicating with me. 
and solving whatever you know animosity that he has over that towards me. So, so let me ask you the question directly because you've you've basically answered it. But um, do you regret being unethical by outing the female wingman pilot who wanted to remain anonymous and still does? Um, well, whether she wanted to remain anonymous is still kind of whatever. I I think that the ethicalness of it is a very subjective thing. And I really honestly haven't made my final mind up whether I did the right thing or not. And I really debated about this in my own mind for a long time. But we often talk about people suppressing information and suppressing data. And this is the single most important UFO case in history. It has the most evidence, the most sensory evidence, the most video evidence, the most everything. It's a crucial, crucial case. And I think there, it almost seems a little sexist to me that he would feel like he has to defend her, you know, more than communicate with me and just, you know, allow me, if it was a mistake, if I did do the wrong thing, uh, allow me that human frailty to make a mistake because I'm not perfect. I do, uh, you know, part of my abilities is to um, find things that are obscured and reveal information. And I'm not going to be another person suppressing information from the public. I just don't think that's right and that's fair. And I also think that this person is part of a incredibly important historic event and she, this person should come forward for the benefit of all of us. Um, and this will not hurt her, this person or their career. This person is a badass. Um, this person is absolutely amazing, has made like over 300 wartime day and night landings on aircraft carriers. This person is a badass. And she's, you know, I'll just, I won't reveal the name, but she's beautiful. She's incredibly intelligent. And um, this coming out would not hurt. Um, I don't think it would hurt her career. Um, many pilots and have come out and spoken about these different issues and everyone else associated with it has come out. And there's been a lot of lies as if, um, Fravor was her when she's a very important witness and has very important things to say and was the crucial witness. So, you know, what I would say to Joe and to anyone who feels animosity towards me for revealing that information, they may think it's unethical. I'm not even certain myself if I did the right thing or not. And, you know, I can't take back what I did. And I would just ask people like Joe to always communicate with the people they have a problem with, especially within our community. We shouldn't divide ourselves in the UFO research community. Joe's a very serious guy about this research, and so am I. And we care about this topic very much. So we shouldn't divide each other. We should try to find bridges and learning and understanding. You know, if I am wrong, a compassionate, intelligent conversation could with Joe could have helped me realize that. But other people who are upset at me, uh, like uh, Jay, you, Twitter uh, Jay, has spoken with me and we resolved any, you know, a couple people were upset that I had revealed that name. And, you know, just anyone who uh, still has any animosity about that, you know, I, I apologize that I hurt their feelings. Uh, I have very small um, viewership, <laughs> you know, so it's not like I revealed it to the world and, you know, uh, you know I ask his forgiveness. No, and uh, I, I still think it's history and, and, and very important stuff. 
that's a very honest answer and I appreciate that. And Joe, again, thank you for the question as well. That that would be good if you could get in touch. Uh, there's been a lot of animosity on, on Twitter in the last couple of days, particular. Yeah, he's, you know, he's just blocked me and not communicated. And I think within our community, we should, we don't have to worry about disinformation, CIA operatives making us look foolish or like infighters. We do it pretty good ourselves. And uh, I think we should always strive for the highest ideals. And, you know, pragmatism and logic and also a little bit of compassion too. No one's perfect. Absolutely not. You're right. Thank you for the questions, folks. There was a few other ones sent in, but just due to time constraints and also the the body of the interview, we've answered quite a lot of those as well. Just to finish off on the quick fire round, it's a few words or sentences on various projects and topics, uh, and okay. then we'll kind of finish off. So the first one would be the Montauk project. Uh, BS. I thought you might say that. The next one would be and this one's kind of for me, the Men Who Steric Goats, the movie. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Have you read the book? No, I haven't. Do you know what it's about? Yes. Yeah, okay. Is it something you're going to see, or do you just choose not to? I choose not to. Okay. But I believe in the abilities. I, I know they exist. I just wondered, given the tone of the film, if you would if you would avoid it, given it is more comical and obviously kind of fant- fantasized, given the nature of the thing, it doesn't have to be, does it? So the next one would be the friendly and hostile ET narrative. I only believe in the friendly ET narrative. I'm not a subscriber to the hostile ET narrative, and I've never seen any convincing evidence. There's plenty of stories about hostile, negative experiences, negative abductions, but I'm highly suspect of those. Uh, Dr. Stephen Greer. That's a very complex um, subject. He is someone that the UFO community should always be incredibly grateful for, for so many different things. The press club event where he brought out all these people for all of his interviews. But there's also a lot of fear mongering with, you know, a giant fake UFO event and the government's going to be doing this and that. Cool. Um, CE5? Um, very real, very important. The technique is everything. Uh, Tom DeLong? Fear mongerer. And the last one I'd like to finish off with all the guests. What does disclosure mean to you? Uh, revealing the reality that advanced civilizations have been visiting our planet. Excellent. That's great. Uh, Listen, buddy, it's been amazing talking with you. If you want to just let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you, how they can subscribe to your YouTube channel. They could just go to Alien Protocols on YouTube or to email me if anyone wants healing. We never charge for any of this stuff. Uh, If there's someone sick who needs healing, if you need a remote viewing, if you want tips on psi uh, abilities, it would be a pleasure to help in any way we can. You just email at alienprotocols at gmail.com. That's great, buddy. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. God bless you and the listeners. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show this week. Really cool chat with Buddy from Alien Protocols. Remember, Calvin Parker and Brian Arnold will be up next on the show, and I am in talks with some more people to come on the show that I just, again, unfortunately can't name quite yet. But Again, all your support is appreciated. Follow the show on Twitter at UFO, UAPAM. 
follow on Facebook, That UFO Podcast, and also over on Instagram, That UFO Podcast. Keep in touch, folks. Again, patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast if you want to pledge and support the show and you get some bonus goodies and content for that as well. Again, been great talking to everyone the last couple of weeks online, folks. Thank you so much. All your support and listens are really what are keeping this show uh, as popular as it is and it really has been amazing these first couple of months. So plenty more to come from myself. Again, keep looking up, folks. You never know what you might see. Thank you.